I have cried out to God a number of different times in my life. Or I've said, God, I need you. I need you now. It's one of those, where's God when you need him most? And out of many different times that I've cried out, there was one time when I, I remember it was 11 or 12 at night, and it was a number of years ago, and I was on my knees. I can see the spot. I actually looked at it again this morning in my office at home, and, and I, I um, boy, more than that, maybe about 50, I don't want to date myself. Anyways, more than that, more time than that. And I remember just crying out to God, and I felt this, this presence and this, and it wasn't a voice, but it was a voice that said, you'll be okay. Now, I've had all other kinds of experiences like that, and I haven't had a voice. In fact, many of those times when I've cried out to God and I've said, God, I really need you now, it just seems silent. It's kind of like what's happening, what we see in this book of Esther, where you're saying, where's God? And, and you don't have a voice, you don't have something that comes to you, but what you have is, is, is this sense that you're, you're just God's calling you to press in and to trust him and to declare that he's here, even though you don't see him and you don't know where he's at and what could be happening and... And he, 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 you know, you may have this desire for, for, um, God to step in and intervene, right? You know, do something here, God. And, and it's quiet and all you sense is that you're to step forth and trust. And to do what you know is right and to trust. Why is that so hard? It is so hard. So we're looking at the story of Esther, and this is really what the book is about. Israel had been um, in captivity for about 70 years now, and a first group of people, um, Persia came, and they, just, they um, overwhelmed the, the, uh, the Babylonian army, and now Persia is the new center of influence in the whole world. Kingdoms stretching from India all the way to North Africa, and, and and their policy was to begin to release the prisoners rather than to bring them. They they released them to go back into the lands because they felt like if they could have that kind of alliance and friendship, they would they would hold the borders, they'd hold the lands, and the gods that they even served would be on their side. So that was kind of their policy. They're they're there, but there's a whole number of people still spread throughout the kingdom that didn't return, didn't go back. They had become settled some of their lands. And it, it, it's known as the Dispora. When, when, when Babylon came in and also Assyria before that, they, they just scattered these Jewish people all throughout the world. So these little settlements were found all over the place. But this book specifically is taking place in the winter capital of Persia called Susa, which is where we get the name Susan. And, and, and so this is where these Jews are located. It's the seat of power. It's the Washington, D.C. of their land, so to speak. And this is some six to seven hundred years this dysphoria took place before the coming of Christ. And so last week as we're looking at the story of Esther, it ends with this edict being sent throughout all the kingdom, all the way from India to North Africa. And it read, destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. To plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. And the person who who came up with the idea and the plan, his name was Haman, and Haman was from a descendant of the king of Agag who were from a group of people called the Amalekites, from a guy named Amalek, King Amalek. 
that goes all the way back to Esau. So Jacob and Esau, and you have this struggle and this fight, but, but specifically, the Amalekites were a people that not only hated Israel, but they hated their God. And so the, the story that, if you might remember it, is, is um, Israel has been released from Egypt. They're going through the, the, the sea. As they go through the sea, and they're making their way into the wilderness, the first army that comes against them are the Amalekites, and it's Amalek. And it, it's almost somewhat of a surprise attack in some ways. And, and the story in the Old Testament goes that as they fought against them, at, as Moses kept his hands in the air in prayer, they would win. But when his arms fell, they would begin to lose. So that Aaron and her would stand on either side holding his arms. And the idea was that, that your victory comes through, as we heard just from Dan and Alyssa, through prayerful intercession. It's not so much the strength of your arms and the speed of your horses and the military might that you have. It is your connection and your heart connected to God that brings about victory. So that, so that you have Haman, and, and, and he has a arch enemy of the, the Israelites, the Jews, and, and, and the guy he can't really stand is a guy named Mordecai. And Mordecai was a descendant of a guy named King Saul. When King Saul was the guy who fought against King Agag, which is his descendant, back in, the, in a number of years before that. And Mordecai had found out there was a plot for the, that, that was coming against King Xerxes here in Persia, and he notified the king through Esther, and the king was saved. And in some, for some reason, Mordecai's name was written in the annals, the history, the journals of, of the court, but he was never rewarded. Recorded, but not rewarded. But there was a guy, Haman, who somehow, because that whole country of Persia is really about superstition and luck and fate, kind of saw the doors open and he stepped through because he was in a kind of equal footing in the gate of the king where the officials of Mordecai and those guys would be. He kind of snuck through the door and took credit for it. And so he's honored and he's placed in a position of honor. And the king wants everyone to bow to Haman, but Mordecai won't. And Mordecai refuses and Haman is angry. And so Haman puts this... this um, this plan together, when he finds out that Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul and the Jews, to annihilate every Jew, which would include Mordecai. What he doesn't know is Esther is in the court of the king. He's the, she's the new queen. And so the story, if you weren't with us, um, at one point, King Xerxes has this pep rally to, send, to try and get people to go off to war. And long and short of it is... He asked the queen to come and do something inappropriate. Queen Vashti, she refuses. He, in a fit of rage, drunk, wasted, goes ahead, gets some advice, deposes her, divorces her, and sends her off. He goes off to war, is defeated badly by the Greeks, comes back, and when he comes back, he's sullen. He begins to start thinking of Queen Vashti again. His advisors are afraid because they're the ones who put the plan together. And they say, how about if we do a beauty pageant? There's a beauty pageant. Esther wins the beauty pageant in favor of everyone, and she becomes queen. And we pick up, as the story ends, the final scene of chapter 3 is the king and Haman sitting down to drink after Haman's hatched his plan 
And we're told the city of Susa, all the people of Susa are bewildered by this edict that has gone out. And the picture is this, of this, remember kids, you're not supposed to say this really about a person, so this stupidly proud actions of a king, okay, it wasn't what I remember, his, and his arrogant second in command are making a toast to their plans to annihilate the troublemaking race, a genocide. And they're thrilled because literally his plan, Haman's plan, will put tons of silver into the royal treasury. The second scene is the city of Susa, bewildered and confused, wondering who is running this show. And the other scene is the Jews throughout the world are filled with questions and panic, and they're saying, where are you, God? What, are, what, what about those promises you made to preserve us as a people? What about your covenant to us? So let's pick up chapter 4. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Yep. Oh. I'll try. No, let's go with this. <clears throat> this is part of the things you got to put up. People, you know, sound all different things. Things are kind of wacky right now. So please give us grace and mercy um, through all different things that are going on as we, we are going. So, okay, on with the story. So Mordecai learned of all the bad that uh, all that had been done. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Now this is really a bit odd for us because you would probably not be, if you got a pink slip or you were told by someone that you're investing your relationship with hoping um, that this, you know, this friendship and this has now become a love, all of a sudden they tell you they're in the friend zone, you would probably not go Go to a place where you would put on sackcloth and spread ashes all over yourself and start mourning and weeping wildly, right? That's just probably not the way that you would express what's going on with your inner turmoil. It's not common in our culture, but it's common in other cultures around the world. In fact, when I was one time flying into Kenya, it was back in the year 2000, I went into the airport there, and as I got off the plane, I heard this loud shriek, and it just sounded like someone was being killed. I mean, it was just, I turned the corner, and here's a lady, and she's on the floor with all her stuff all over the place, and she's disheveled, and I think actually ripped her clothes, and she's wailing and weeping and mourning as loud as she could. I had no idea what it was about. But it's like people just kind of, they didn't, whatever. We're going by. It's a common response in the Middle East. It's a way to show one's deep grief. It's one way to make visible what's going on inside. And I could give you all kinds of references. Genesis, Numbers, 2 Samuel, all, like all kinds of them where, where you see this. And sackcloth is, is told in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, explains what sackcloth really is. He says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. So in a sense, they cut a hole in their head, they slits in their arms, and they're wearing burlap sacks with ashes, Showing sorrow, humility, and complete abject humiliation. That's Mordecai's immediate response to this edict. So verse 2, but he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter into it. He was restricted to the king's gate because they didn't want in the palace area and they didn't want where the king was or where his servants and everyone else were. They didn't want people coming in doing anything really negative. 
The king's peace and serenity was of utmost importance. You just were not to disturb it. He wasn't to be bothered with bad news or someone's sorrow or someone's need. Remember, if you, if, if you're, there's a book called Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is a cupbearer, and he is serving the king, and the king notices his sadness in his face, and, and he's afraid. Nehemiah is afraid as the cupbearer because you don't do that. Your life could be, you could be not only losing your job, but losing your head. That's how important it was to not bring anything negative into the realm of where the palace or the king was. It's, kind of, it's probably no different than when you're at a party and you have people who are serving. You don't want them going around. Yeah. Right? And so, so that's what's going on. So he, he's not even to enter into that place. Um, basically, the law is don't bother or trouble the sovereign ruler with your petty concerns or sadness. Verse 3. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came... There was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So not only do we see Mordecai in this kind of clothing, weeping and wailing, but Jews, when they hear the sentence, this potential mass genocide themselves are in places where they are out letting everyone know about their fear and the future that they're looking at. And so they fast, which is one way to say, I will refuse and overlook any of my physical needs for a period of time in order to bring a priority to my spiritual condition. That's why people fast. So that's one of the reasons people fast. They fast in order to say, so important, God, so important that I want to be connected to and I want you to understand the spiritual condition that I am in or we are in in order to do that, I'm going to just not partake of anything physical. I'm going to highlight this. And, and the phrases, again, prayer and fasting are found throughout the Bible. Um, and, and, and what's interesting here, remember I had said at one point in these messages a couple different times, that um, there is no mention of God in the whole story of Esther. The name God is never mentioned. And, and what is interesting here is they don't say prayer and fasting. They just say fasting. Because they're careful to avoid not only the mention of God's name, but even prayer that is made to him. They don't even talk about sacrifices being made to him at all in this. And the purpose is to show us, the readers, that even where God seems to be most absent, he still is there and hears your cries and notices your tears. It's an incredible literary kind of contrast to help you kind of go, where is God? And, and what happens is, is the readers, as we read it, you kind of look at it and you can go, well, here's God, here's God, here's God. What looks to be coincidence, we see the providential hand of God. But as it's all going on, what, what, what the person in the story doesn't see it at all. So when you're in this place where you're crying out, God, I need you, I need you most right now. You can't even see where God is at work in your life until you sometimes, you have that experience where you look back a few months or a four months or so and you start going, wow, I see God, how he led here and how he led here and how he did this and how he did that and he got me to here and his hand has been on my life and I didn't even know it. And so you hear this story. Verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept it. And then Esther summoned Hathah, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Two things that I think are really interesting. First, when she hears about his sorrow and despair, she sends him clothes, kind of going, put some clothes on so that you can enter in here. And he says, no way, I'm not going to even disturb my fast. This is of such an importance and such a nature. So now they get into kind of a he said, she said thing with an intermediary going back and forth. 
And so he comes back and he, he tells her that he's not going to come. And the other interesting uh, uh, thing to note here is, is that when he comes back, she doesn't know even what is troubling Mordecai. That's how strong this whole sense of is you don't let anything negative, you don't bring any kind of petty concerns or sorrows that come into the palace. People in the palace weren't to be affected by this. He didn't, no one's to go walking around seeming sad or, in fact, there is a sense that you're not to be informed of what's going on in the outside world. So they weren't even aware of the edict. They're kept secluded away in like blissful ignorance. And I think there, if you could look at it this way, there's like this big do not disturb sign on the royal palace doors. Verse 6, so Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So now, a couple things you're going to note here in the text. It says the exact amount of money. And I think that's mentioned because, um, again, They're trying to reveal to us how important the whole money thing was in this deal. It's the key motive in Haman's plot. It's the reason why King Xerxes, at the end of chapter 3, is toasting him together. This is a good thing, because now at this time in the kingdom, when the defeat that took place in Greece that was really, you know, sucked all the financial um, wealth out of the kingdom, this is a good thing. What he had promised to give them was two-thirds of the annual income of Persia. Herodotus shares that as an external authority. And the king, you get this picture, cares nothing about his people, but only about himself and securing his power. And Mordecai gives Hathach a copy of the edict for the Jews' annihilation that was being circulated all through Susa. And he urges Esther to go to the king, plead for mercy, which is going to require her because something that, um, if you weren't here before, earlier in the story, Mordecai tells her not to reveal the fact that she's a Jew. So no one knows in the palace court that she's a Jew, but now he's saying it's time to reveal who you really are. Verse 9, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say, he said, she said, you know, go over here. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king has but one law, that they may be put to death unless the king extends his golden scepter to them and spares their lives. And in a sense, she says, on top of that, 30 days have passed since I have gone in to see the king. A couple of things that he says, and he'll tell Mordecai, she says, no one can approach the king unless they're first summoned. Secondly, be aware of this. If you approach the king unsummoned, it means death. Unless. In fact, Herodotus mentions this in his um, account. The Persian custom that anyone who approached the king uninvited would be put to death unless they were pardoned by the king. And he says, on occasion, the king had been known to extend his golden scepter to an uninvited person as a guest gesture of mercy. Third, here's, here's the kicker of it all. I haven't seen him for a month. 
I mean, you might think the king and queen have a lot of opportunity to speak. You know what I mean? I, I, I know of couples that can go for, you know, a couple of days and they don't talk. But you see each other, right, usually? Well, here's what's going on. They're not passing each other in the hallway. They're not having dinner together. They're not even sharing the same bed. What they have in that kind of culture in that day is the queen had her own quarters separate far away. And the king had his own. And he ate on his own. He also had this large harem, so he doesn't want to share a bed with her. So 30 days, one whole month, she hasn't seen him. And in her mind, I'm sure she is thinking. I'm sure she's thinking... I may have fallen out of favor with the king. He he hasn't even asked for my presence in a month. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family, father's family will perish. And he gives this little question, and who knows, but that you had come to your royal position for such a time as this. Probably the most famous verse in Esther. This is the hinge part of the whole story. Even as queen, you won't be exempt from Haman's plot, says Mordecai. And also this, if you do remain silent, you're probably not going to live And guess what? God will find a way to deliver his people. He would love to use you, but you're not the necessary cog in this whole thing. He will accomplish his purposes either with you or without you. So finally, he says, maybe the king, here's what might happen. Maybe the king will extend grace. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, you became queen just so that you could be in this position at this time to be used by God for his purposes. Maybe for such a time as this, you're exactly where you should be. Maybe that's true for you right now. When you're in this place, what I think is interesting, he's basically saying to her, it's up to you, the choice is yours. And she's asking these questions. Who will I follow? Will I cast my identity with the world and follow my, or follow my fear and ambition? Will I remain a pagan queen living in luxury and ease? Or will I be that young Jewish trusting girl of the God of my fathers? Do I hide my identity or do I take responsibility for my life, threatened as it is, and choose God? Will I cast my identity and make it known? At this time, in this moment, forces you to kind of ask, what would you do? What do you do? How do you live? What is the identity that you live in and what is it that people reveal? And when is God calling you to reveal it? One last important point is that, as I've said over the weeks, there's this preponderance of allusions to another story of a people in captivity. There was an earlier time in the history when God raised up a person in a foreign land, raised them up to the second place of power within the land in order to save and spare the people. So when you get to verse 414, there's a number of veiled references that anyone with the collective memory of a Jewish person who is reading this would immediately begin to associate with another story. And it's the story of Joseph. 
Back in Genesis, Genesis 47, 7, there was a famine that threatened the destruction of God's people. And Joseph says to his brother on, in, on two different occasions, 45, verse um, 7, and also in 47, verse 7, he, he says, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, for you a remnant on earth to save your lives from a great deliverance. So this is in the back of their mind, another story of how God has worked. And then Genesis 50, 20, Joseph acknowledges God's provinces and even says that God is able to take the evil and do good. He says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what he is now doing, the saving of many lives. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And then he, he's, these words, and if I perish, I perish. You know what? I'm going to choose to be this person who trusts God and do what I believe is right and move into it. And if I live, I live. If I don't, I don't. Which is a a word again with allusions back to the story of Joseph because at one point when the brothers come back and say, you know what, Benjamin, the the little young brother you really love, Dad, we got to bring him back. The guy who's in charge over there in in Egypt, they don't know he's Joseph, but the guy who's in charge wants this our brother. And, and, And the father, Jacob, says... No, he doesn't want it to happen, but he basically comes to a point and he says, as for me, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. If I, if I, it's the same thing. If he perishes, he perishes. So you see these constant allusions to the, to that story. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Esther chooses God. Yet what's really interesting is she doesn't act immediately. She realizes how important this is. And she says, you know what? Before we do anything, let's fast. Doesn't say anything about prayer. Again, remember, you don't want to say, because they're trying to, this feeling of there's no, where's God? But let's fast. And the people fast. And this isn't a normal fast. It's not like from sun up to sundown where you kind of eat a lot before you, the sun comes up. And then when the sun comes down, you eat a lot again. You go to bed stuffed and then you wake up in the morning and this is three days, no eating, no drinking. This is God, our spiritual condition, where we're at right now. We need so badly for you to intervene. We need your hand to move in our life. This is how extreme this is. God, give all your attention to our spiritual condition. And when their backs were to the wall, they don't give up, they don't run, they don't defend, they don't complain, they don't blame, they don't badmouth Esther or Mordecai or their leaders. They prayed. They prayed. Just a few practical applications as we kind of close. First is God cares. There's this contrast that you see all throughout this book is of King Xerxes who can care nothing about anything but himself. But God cares right now, right where you're at. He is not anything like King Xerxes. That's one of the contrasts that you just see again and again. It, it, God is not the kind of God that says, you know, don't bother me with your petty concerns. Don't, don't come in and worry about disturbing my peace. You, you don't have to worry about bringing something negative into my attention. In fact, I so love you. I so care about you. My desire is so different than what you see in this picture. And even though you don't see me, I'm here. In fact, I'm working in such a way that I'm working behind the scenes. I'm involved in your life. My hand is on your shoulder. I am with you. Trust me. 
any picture that is less than that is a lie. And it's so easy. I do it myself all the time. It's so easy to fall into this lie. And what Satan wants us to do from the first day we sinned, when we move into pride and we move away from God, is he causes us to question the goodness of God. Did God really say? Does he really care about you? He does. Second thing is this. God cares. You can actually count on him. Not only does he care about you right now, right where you're at. But God says, you can count on me. He's been faithful in the past. He will be faithful today. The reason for all these parallels in this story is, I think, for us to look at it and go, look at the stories that you see in the word of God. As God has worked in those stories, he will work in your life. There is a, there's a reason why he calls you not only to the Bible and to those stories, he actually is calling the people of Israel to remember their own stories. There is this sense where he's saying, when you're in this place and you're saying, where are you, God? I need you right now more than ever. He's saying, would you just stop for a moment and, and, and get this lie, this picture that God's not good and that he doesn't love you out of your head. And then even go back a little bit to your story and say, has God provided for me before when I've called out to him and said, God, I really need you now. Now, for some of you, maybe in a place you've never done it before, and God has you here at this moment, at this time, specifically because he's saying for you, for the first time, maybe in your entire life, where you've come to a place, you say, God, I want you more than I ever have. I need you, God. Maybe the first story that he writes about how he provides for you. And I just encourage you to lean into him with all your heart. But for some of us, he's saying, you know, it's time to, to grow and to move into a new place and to begin to, as he, as I think the reason he does this is because he's always concerned about exercising and stretching the muscle of faith. He wants each one of us to grow up and become stronger in our ability to believe and to trust in him so that our lives can be established and secure. What God is most concerned about is not giving us the American dream. Being a cry out, oh God, just change these circumstances. If you just do this, then things would be a whole lot better. What God is most concerned about is creating loving people. That's what God's going to ask when we stand before him someday. Not only do you know Jesus and his love for your heart and your life, and have you received it, but have you become a more, have you become a loving person? And then the last is, is this. God cares. Um, he, he takes our present pain and he will use it for future gain. Verse 14 is a hinge in this whole thing. One commentator writes, a basic theological issue is at stake that the people were, were aware of. It is a fundamental to the Jewish world outlook that the preservation of the Jewish people is itself a religious obligation of the first magnitude. The book of Esther, the story in particular this chapter, implies that even when God's people are far from him and even disobedient, they are still the object of his concern and love and that he is working out his purposes through them. There is this reminder that if one fails to carry out God's task, he still will make his purposes known and fulfilled. God is sovereign. 
And the events that seem to be under the control of King Xerxes and Haman prove, in the end, to be directed by God for the benefit of his people. Even the unalterable law of the Medes and Persians, this edict, which would have brought the slaughter of the Jews, is overruled. Because God never loses control. He's always at work behind the scenes, concerned about his people, using these events which seem like present pain for people's future gain. God chose a people, the Jews, and he wasn't going to ever give up on them. To birth a Messiah, Jesus, he had a purpose so that all people could be invited into a relationship with him. Now, I asked George, and George is going to come and just share. One of the great joys we have is, is having a number of really good teachers on staff, lay teachers as well. Um, but George shared something this in June that I just thought was so apropos to this, so I'm going to let you go ahead and share it. So I got to wear it? Yeah. All right. So as we look at uh, Esther, uh, what we see is a transition and we see some real stepping stones to the rapid spread of the gospel, particularly in Acts. In AD 30, seven weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are 120 men and women waiting in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. This is the beginning of the movement that Jesus founded. It numbers in the hundreds. By the end of that day... It multiplies to the thousands. That's Pentecost. By AD 66, there are around 40,000 new believers in this movement. By the end of the first century, it's 100,000. And by AD 300, it has grown to 6 million believers or a tenth of the population of the Roman Empire. Christianity spread... It was fast. It was spontaneous. There wasn't a central organization uh, to it. And what Esper helps us understand is how it was accomplished in God's larger redemptive story. Back, we look at this. This is it. Strong in God's heart. There's a conversation that's happening in Isaiah 49 between the Lord and the Messiah. And this is uh, the heart of the gospel. It says this, this is what the Lord says to the Messiah. He says this in verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts 1, the vision, the mandate that Jesus gives his church before he um, goes up to heaven. He says this. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Despite the absence of God's name in the book of Esther, God is working in Persia. And this is how. He's not working in an open way like we see in Jerusalem with Ezra and Nehemiah, but he is providentially preserving his people among all the nations. Among the ends of the earth. The question of Esther is where is God? What's he doing? Esther is a transition. The idea of the kingdom of God and its relationship to the ends of earth is what's happening in Esther. Because what's happening outside of Jerusalem 
the majority of the Jews are dispersed. It's called the diaspora. And by the time of Christ, there are more Jews living outside Palestine, living outside the promised land than inside. What is God doing? Where is God? The amazing answer comes in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, and following all throughout Acts, because we can trace it back to the book of Esther. It says this, in Jerusalem, for Pentecost, there were Jews from every nation under heaven. And you trace back and you see all the cities that are represented. You can see Susa up there. They're coming into Jerusalem. They're getting multiplied by the thousands. And it stretches out 2,000 miles from east to west, a 1,000 from north to south. These are the Jews, where they're coming from. That's 2 million square miles. And they're going back from Jerusalem, being anointed with the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. That's what's happening. That's how Christianity spread so quickly. But where are they going back? There's another key element, an interesting element, to why the gospel spread so rapidly. We see this in chapters like Acts 6 and 13. They're going back to cities that are listed in the Persian Empire, time of Babylon, when Assyria came in and scattered um, uh, the northern tribes. What happened during the time of Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah? The synagogue comes into place. They are no longer in Jerusalem. They're no part, no longer part of the temple system. So what happens? They start synagogues, which are basically, literally translated, a gathering place. It's a place where they set up to gather, to pray, and to worship. Paul was the first missionary. Where does Paul go? You can see this in Acts chapter 13. When he goes, when he first preaches the gospel, where does he go? He goes to the synagogues. Why does he go to the synagogues? Because they get it. They understand. They're familiar with the Mosaic Law. They understood immediately how Jesus changed the temple system and how you can now worship Jesus everywhere and what it means for all peoples, every nation, to the ends of the earth. James says this in Acts 15. It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. For Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest times as read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. There's one thing I find very encouraging about all this. Even though God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, you can see God moving. You can see the Jews dispersed, the Hellenized Jews received the gospel, and the gospel exponentially exploded. But what is encouraging for me is that you see how it moved. The gospel was not primarily the work of paid professionals. It moved because Paul came to synagogues and encouraged people like you and me, and we went out. It was spontaneous. It was an explosion. It was revival. It was hurt. It was hope. The synagogues were the beginning, the foundation of the church. God is not mentioned in Esther, but God is moving in his larger redemptive story. Thank you, Kim.